John 13, 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So John chapter 13 is a story about a particular type of leadership, uh, a servant-oriented form of leadership. Now, if you're a leader in any capacity whatsoever, um, you might be familiar with uh, some leadership literature, and most newer leadership literature really resembles in some ways what Jesus does and speaks about here. Uh, Gone, in large part, is the old idea of the hero leader. The leader who, just by the force of his own charisma and personality, can drive an organization or a group of individuals to the success and the fulfillment of their mission. I think, helpfully, what we see in a lot of leadership literature today, whether that be from Christians or from people that aren't followers of Jesus, is that healthy leaders are humble leaders. Healthy leaders are leaders who are willing to give credit to others and not just take all the credit for themselves. Healthy leaders are those who are willing to serve. This is a story about servant leadership exemplified and demonstrated ultimately in Jesus himself. Now, we've been going through John's gospel this year. We'll be taking our time and finishing up John in June. So we've got a couple of months as we head through this book. And if you have been with us at all, you'll know that John's purpose in writing this gospel is very, very clear. He tells us at the very end in chapter 20, he says, he has written this book that you may believe. So what we want for you this morning, no matter where you're coming from, no matter if you say you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for years, if you're not sure, or if you know you're not a Christian, what we want for you this morning is to believe, is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, Because John tells us that by believing, you have life, life in the name of Jesus. And I want you to think about how much you need the kind of life Jesus offers. We all need abundant life. And we all know people who need abundant life. And as we've gone through John, I tell you, I'm more and more persuaded that this might be the best book in all of the Bible to introduce people 
to the life that Jesus offers. So I want you to think about maybe someone in your life that you want to introduce to Jesus and to the life that Jesus brings and consider inviting them to hear as we move through the second part of John's gospel. That's where we are this morning. Beginning in chapter 13, we approach the major transition in the gospel. Chapters 2 through 12 of the Gospel of John are focused on Jesus' public ministry. They've been called by commentators the book of signs because Jesus again and again gives signs or miracles in a public demonstration of who he is and why he has come. In chapter 13, all the way really through the end, but especially through chapter 17, we have what is Jesus' private ministry. It's called by theologians the book of glory. In chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room with his 12 disciples, and all the way through chapter 19 really is one 24-hour calendar day. And so pretty much half of John's gospel is the last two or three days of Jesus's life, including his death and his resurrection. And so today we find ourselves transitioning to studying together the private ministry of Jesus to his people. This is like a crash course from Jesus in discipleship for his disciples and also, therefore, for you and for me. And so what does Jesus do first? That's what we read about today. In the upper room, during supper, Jesus gives his disciples, and as we read this story, he gives also to us another visible sign of the nature of his ministry. And thus also of the nature of the ministry that he wants us to have towards each other and towards the world. What does Jesus do here? He serves his disciples humbly. That's the purpose of this foot washing. Here's the way I want to summarize it this morning. Here's the main idea for you today. Jesus's service cleanses his people and is an example for his people. Let's just break that sentence into two parts. Those will be the two parts of the sermon today. Jesus' service cleanses us, and Jesus' service is an example for us. So first we see that Jesus' service cleanses us. That's found in verses 1 through 11. Jesus wants his disciples to understand why he has come. And so he gives them here another visible, tangible demonstration of his mission. He washes their feet as a servant. Now we're going to talk about that in just a second, but first... I want you to look at verse 1 and note a very, very interesting thing that John tells us. We read there, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or you could translate, he loved them perfectly. I like combining those two. So that it reads, he loved them to the end perfectly. That's worth thinking about. For just a minute, Jesus, at this time in his life, is the only one in this room who knows that in a matter of hours, he's going to undergo immense torture and be put to death through a grisly, horrific, public crucifixion. He's the only one who knows that he's about to die a bloody death. And yet here, Jesus, John Beach is sure to tell us, is the one who commits to love and to serve those who were closest to him. Think about it like this. What was on Jesus's bucket list? You ever heard the phrase a bucket list? The things that you want to be sure you get in before you die. Maybe you 
let's hope this never happens, but per- perhaps you know you have 24 hours or a weekend left to live, and you think, what am I going to do with my final hours on this planet? Maybe you want to go skydiving. I wouldn't recommend that. It might come earlier than you want, your death. Um, maybe you want to eat a really, really nice meal. Maybe you want to spend as much time as possible with your family and your friends, your closest loved ones. I don't know what you have on your bucket list, but on Jesus's bucket list, it's very clear that his only priority is to bring glory to the Father by loving others, by loving the people that were nearest to him. He loves them to the end. I love what that teaches us about Jesus. Do you know that Jesus will love you, each one of you, to the end? Jesus is never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Isn't that good? Jesus is always there. He's always present with you through the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. He's always demonstrating to you his love. He will love you all the way through, no matter what you face. He loves his people to the end. Amen. That's good news. So Jesus loves his people. He loves his disciples perfectly. And now John tells us how Jesus shows this. Verses 2 through 5 make that clear. Jesus signifies the type of love he has for his people through this foot washing. Now, it doesn't take a PhD in the New Testament to figure out that in the ancient world, washing people's feet was not something that was reserved for the heads of households or for kings or for important people. Foot washing was reserved for the lowest type of servant, for the slaves at the bottom of the totem pole. And the reason is because foot washing was not just a menial task, it was a disgusting and degrading task. Especially in the ancient world when they didn't have modern sewage and they didn't have modern footwear. You can connect the dots there, I'm sure. This is a debased and gross thing to do. And now throughout John, we have seen John present Jesus, listen, we've seen John present Jesus as someone who makes these astounding claims about himself. Jesus can say without any sense of guile, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. No one can access God unless they come to God through me. Jesus very self-consciously indicates to the world that he is God. He is divine. He is the maker of all things. We see that in the very beginning of John's gospel. He is the word through whom God makes himself known and through whom this entire universe was created. Jesus is the ultimate ruler of everything. That's what John has said. And yet here... Jesus doesn't receive service like a king. Jesus performs service like a slave. There's no parallel in any ancient literature of someone of superior status washing the feet of someone of inferior status. And that's because Jesus is a different kind of leader. Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus is a servant king. Jesus is a king who came to give himself up for his subjects. And this foot washing is a living illustration of that. It's a living illustration of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what he writes there. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to hold on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Jesus shows us 
that the incarnation, God becoming a man, involves him descending not just into our humanity, but even into a place of servitude, of servitude towards humanity. One of the ancient church fathers, a man named Severian, writes this, he who, wraps him, he who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped round himself a towel. He who pours the water into the rivers and pools tipped water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. Jesus came to serve his people. Jesus came to humble himself so that we can have life. And now the story tells us that, of course, Jesus' disciples didn't understand what was going on. And as usual, we see this via the eyes, well, really the mouth of Peter. And uh, look at what Peter says. As usual, he speaks up for the 12 disciples, and he says with astonishment in verse 8, You shall never wash my feet, Jesus. You can translate that parochially, not in a million years. Will I allow you to wash my feet? And in this interchange between Peter and Jesus, we see the key to this entire story. Jesus isn't just washing the disciples' feet because they're dirty on the outside, you see. Jesus is washing their feet to show that he came to cleanse people from the inside out. That's a picture, the foot washing of what he's going to do at the cross. The cross where Jesus dies is the place where he cleanses us of our dirtiness, of our sin, by serving us unto death. Now, Peter, at this point, doesn't get all of this symbolism. Jesus even says, you're not going to understand this now. But he gets enough to say, no, 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 Jesus, I don't want you to do this right now. He knows this much. Jesus is serving me here. And Peter is embarrassed by this. He's ashamed by it. He can't stand for it. He won't stand for it. And so he says with seeming humility, Lord, no way, not in a million years. I should serve you. You can't serve me. I won't allow this. And what does Jesus say? Verse 8, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. What's going on here? I want you to listen. Here's what Jesus means. Jesus is saying, anyone who wants to benefit from my work must allow me to serve him. Anyone who wants to experience the grace that I offer must accept my service for them. Jesus shows us here once again an almost incomprehensible truth about what the real God is like. The real God wants to relate to us as one who is always at our service. He is our Lord, but he lives his lordship in service to his people. And so here's the point for you and for me today. We must let ourselves be loved by the completely free love of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, that's actually quite hard to do. Do you know that? I think most of us actually can relate to Peter here. It reminds me of an experience I had three or four years ago. I was with a group of other pastors and we were taking a weekend retreat out of the city and we were staying at a friend of mine's um, cabin in the woods and 
he had brought some of his family on the trip with him. And the whole weekend, this guy's mom in particular basically was at our service. She was at our beck and call. She cooked all the meals. She, I mean, she probably would have fed me the meal if I had asked. She was um, washing everything. She was doing all, I mean, she did everything. All we had to do was just relax and enjoy, our, enjoy ourselves. And I'll tell you what, I don't know if you've ever if you're experienced anything like this, but it was a little bit awkward. It was a little bit weird. And I found myself constantly coming up to her and saying, hey, can I help you with that? Can I wash these dishes for you? Or can I run that errand for you? Or can I clean the table for you? And she would just repeatedly say to me, no, 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 go sit down. I am here to serve you. The reason that was awkward for me and for the others that I was with is because our natural instinct is to be like Peter here. Our natural instinct is to struggle to accept pure, unadulterated, free grace. Why do you think that is? Well, it's because to accept such a thing is an utterly humbling experience. It utterly smashes all pride and all contribution from us. It's hard for the proud to accept the truth that if we want a part of Jesus, we must simply accept what he offers us. But that's the gospel. The gospel says we can't do anything for Jesus. He has to do it all for us. We must receive his service and know that we can't pay him back. That's what we mean by grace. Grace that could possibly be repaid is not grace. This is radical, offensive grace that Jesus demonstrates here. And we don't really live as if God relates to us that way. We live as if God says, I'm going to do this whole death on a cross for you, Luke. And so I expect some return on investment at some point in the not so distant future, right? We live as if God relates to us like we perhaps relate to others when we're serving them. I'm serving you here, but it's tit for tat. I want something back. I've got a selfish interest in my service here. But that's not who God is. That's not what Jesus does. You've got to get that if you want to get Jesus. The gospel says forgiveness of sins, Jesus' cleansing work for us on the cross will be the foundation of our relationship with Jesus constantly and always, or there will never be a firm foundation with Jesus or with his Father. That's hard on our pride, but it's medicine for our souls. So let me ask you, do you see Jesus that way? Has that been your experience with God? If it hasn't, then I would even go so far as to say that you perhaps have never really experienced the true grace of the real God because you have to let him cleanse you completely by his grace. Have you done that? Or are you trying to pay him back in some way? by being religious enough or good enough or spiritual enough, by working to stay in his good graces. The gospel says you don't need to do that. Jesus says the one who has bathed, verse 10, does not need to wash but is completely clean. Jesus, in his service unto death on the cross, makes us clean forever, once and for all. It's free. He came to serve us, and his service cleanses us forever of our sin. So Jesus' service cleanses us. Secondly, though, This story shows that Jesus wanted people to see that his foot washing, his foot washing service not only symbolizes his cleansing of our sins on the cross, but it is an example of how we are to relate to each other. 
He makes that as plain as day in verse 15. Look at what he says. I have given you an example. It's hard to be much clearer than that, right? I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. So both our theology, that is the way we relate to God, and our ethics, that is the way we relate to one another and to the world, receive master demonstrations here from Jesus' foot washing. And furthermore, I want you to see in verses 13 and 14 what Jesus says. There he says, you call me teacher, rabbi, and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and rabbi, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, Jesus is showing us here how to rightly use power and privilege. Jesus is the most powerful person who's ever lived. He is the Lord. He is the teacher, but he's also a foot washer. I think the point for you and for me is very clear. The greater your position, the greater your power, the greater your influence, the greater your corresponding privilege and opportunity is to serve this world. The call of the Christian disciple in this world is to use whatever authority, whatever power, whatever privilege God has granted to us to make ourselves more vulnerable to the risk of service and sacrifice. Harry Potter illustrates this well, as he does most things. And uh, in the sixth book, if you haven't gotten to the sixth book, kids, I'm not going to give too much away, but you might want to cover your ears. Um, Dumbledore, who's the head of the Hogwarts school and the most powerful wizard in the world, who throughout the book series shows himself to be a really capable leader, a capable teacher, a capable wizard. Dumbledore and Harry have to go on a journey to recover a very important treasure that's essential in the defeat of the evil wizard Voldemort. And Dumbledore and Harry make their way into this cave, and they go on a boat across this really scary, nasty lake to this island in the middle of the lake, and there's this basin full of water and a big chalice in the basin. And in the bottom of the chalice is the locket, is the treasure that they must retrieve. But Dumbledore explains to Harry, I've got to drink this entire chalice full of this magical water if I'm going to retrieve this chalice. And only someone as powerful as me is going to be able to do this because this is a very, very powerful spell, a powerful potion that's been put over this water. And so Dumbledore goes on to tell Harry, I'm probably going to get really, really weak as I drink this, and you're going to have to actually force the rest of it down my throat if I prove incapable of doing it by myself. But Harry, you could never do this. Only I have the ability to do it. And so Dumbledore uses all of the resources and strength and wisdom at his disposal to drink this entire potion-filled chalice full of water. It's a very powerful scene showing that Dumbledore is willing to lead by using all the authority, all of the rights, all of the power, all of the privilege vested in him to serve and sacrifice for Harry and for the whole wizarding world to push back evil. That's a great lesson in leadership. That's what Jesus is saying that we should do here. Use our power and authority to sacrificially serve the world. So what would that look like for you? What would that look like for me? to mimic the example of Jesus, drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, 
to use whatever power we may have to serve. Well, I want to close today with just three examples from various walks of life to maybe prime the pump for your thinking about what it might look like for you to live a servant-oriented life. Three ways that we can do what Jesus calls us to do here and serve. First, we can do it in the church community, in our own family of faith here. It's always an important question for us to ask, how can we be serving one another? How can service define our posture towards each other? And you know, there are the obvious things. There's serving on a Sunday in one of the various ministry capacities we have. There's coming to our Christchurch Serves events. We had a great one yesterday at SAM. But there's more. There's, there's the willingness to seek the good of others, especially those who are not yet here, rather than our own good in worship and in fellowship. There's a willingness to lay down our own preferences, uh-oh, our own privileges, our own time and our own energy so that others might receive service and care. It's important for us to think about what ministries and strategies in our particular church will best help serve others and so serve those who are not here yet, but that we want here, rather than thinking about what services and ministries will most serve us. There's an innumerable number of ways in a church family, including ours, where we can posture ourselves towards one another in the posture of a servant. Secondly, in the world of the family, particularly if you're parenting small children, which many of you are. Will reminded me this week, just in conversation in the office, that probably the most modern, the most appropriate modern parallel to foot washing is diaper changing, right? You're changing diapers, it's debased, it's dirty, it's nasty, no one sees you do it, it's something you're not going to get, the baby's not going to say, hey, thanks mom, appreciate that. You're going to get no congratulation, you're going to get no thank you, you're going to get no approval, you just have to do it in quiet, by yourself, late at night, giving your life away. Giving your life away for the good of someone who's utterly and in every way dependent upon you, right? So you young moms, dads, and eh, not really, really young moms. Okay, dads are good too. You're welcome. Young parents, I think it's important for you just to sit in this truth for a minute. Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We know that service is the way of Jesus. He served us even to death and made us clean as we've seen. And so now we are called in his power and by his grace to serve others. So can you see your calling, mom or dad, in that light? You're laying down your own preferences. You're laying down your own rights. In some instances, you're laying down your own careers. You're laying down your relationships and your social lives to serve these small people dependent upon you. And in so doing, you are leading to a flourishing family, a flourishing society, and a flourishing church. So well done. Keep it up. It's a great example. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, noticeable about it, which is exactly what Jesus wants of his people. So the church community is an opportunity for us to posture ourselves as servants. The family is an opportunity for us to posture ourselves as servants. And then lastly, I'm convinced that Jesus has much to say here to leaders, to leaders. If you're a leader in whatever field God has placed you in, if you have your own business, if you're a leader in, a, in this church, if you're an officer in the Air Force, the key question of leadership for the follower of Jesus 
is how can I demonstrate the love of God and enable others to thrive as a result of my position and authority? How can you be a servant as a leader? That's something for you to consider in your own particular field. But it might mean having an open-door policy for all employees. It might mean taking less salary. It might mean being more vulnerable and open to feedback and critique. I want to challenge you to consider Jesus' words for your own daily life at work and in leadership. John Maxwell is a guy that's written a lot of books on leadership. And in one of his books, he tells a story about Dan Cathy, who is the CEO of Chick-fil-A. And uh, he talks about one time when Cathy came and spoke at one of Maxwell's leadership conferences that Maxwell was hosting. And he writes that Cathy repeatedly would tell him that Chick-fil-A would succeed and achieve financial success not through strength, but through service. And by the way, parentheses, that's true, isn't it? I mean, isn't Chick-fil-A just awesome at that? I love playing with the employees when I walk in and I'll say, hey, I'm going to have a six-pack of nuggets and a tea. And they'll say, it's my pleasure to provide you that. And I'm like, man, I want to ask for more stuff now just because I like to hear people say, it's my pleasure to give you that. And so I'll ask for some. I I end up buying more food. It's a part of their strategy, I know. But they have a reputation for saying, it's my pleasure to serve you. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. They're a company that has a reputation of service. That's what Kathy's talking about. And during the speech he gave at this conference, he gave a demonstration of his approach to leadership. He had John Maxwell uh, come onto the stage and sit down in a chair, and Dan Cathy pulled out this nine-inch, 100% horsehair shoe brush. And he got down on both of his knees, and he began to say this to the audience full of leaders there. He said, this is an industrial strength toothbrush, shoe brush, not toothbrush, (laughs) industrial strength shoe brush. You need a real industrial strength toothbrush. You're going to do this. And uh, it's the best you can get, he said, from the Johnston and Murphy Shoe Company. And I'm going to present every one of you with one of these shoe brushes as you leave here. And then he has Maxwell sit in a chair and he gets down and he starts cleaning his shoes with this shoe brush. And as he's cleaning his shoes, he says, now this works whether the person's got tennis shoes, Nike or Reebok. It will work on any type of shoe. So don't worry about what kind of shoes the person has on. You don't say anything. That's one of the real keys here. And you're in no big hurry to do this, Kathy says. And then when I'm done, I always give my employee a big hug. And I find that in the right setting, when you have time to do this, it can have a powerful impact on people's lives. And it summarizes how our company wants to relate to our customers. Now, I find that to be a very helpful illustration for how Jesus calls not just leaders to relate to others, but each of us to relate to one another and to relate to the world in the posture of a servant, because he has first served us. So are you you willing this morning and in the future to allow Jesus to serve you in his grace, to die to cleanse you completely? And are you willing to follow Jesus by serving others, laying down your own rights for the sake of the world? I had a conversation this week, last thing real quick, with a a guy that I just met and we were having lunch together on Monday and he's been around San Antonio for a long, long time and he's been in multiple churches and when I was telling him of the story of our church and planning Christ Church, one thing he said to me that has stuck with me all week is this. He said, North San Antonio collectively yawns. It collectively yawns when it hears about another church coming to town. And I thought, ooh. So you want to come to Christ Church on Sunday? And uh, 
We talked more about that, and I I think one of the reasons that perhaps is true in an apt metaphor is because too often I think the church perhaps has wanted to be served by this city rather than serving this city in the posture of Jesus. Which posture are you going to have? One of expecting service or one of giving service? It all comes from the God who has actually given us his service in Jesus, even in Jesus' death. So may it be the case with us now and on into the future together. Let's pray.